This is Guns and Butter. So you see, NATO is becoming the World Cup for the multinationals. And if I can summarize, I think these goals achieves, tries to achieve, but I don't know if they will succeed. I hope not. These goals is achieving, of course, the question of oil, monopoly of oil, securizing Israel, preventing the liberation of African Arabic world, preventing the liberation of African world, and installing NATO as the cup of the world. These are the objectives of Obama and allies. I'm Bonnie Faulkner. Today on Guns and Butter, Michel Colon. Today's show, Five Objectives of the United States in Africa. Michel Colon is a Belgian writer, journalist, and historian. He is an activist and also a filmmaker. He is dedicated to uncovering the propaganda ensconced in the mass media. He directs Investig Action, a team of investigative journalists. Investig Action is a collective founded in 2004 as a platform for those who have no voice in traditional media. Investig Action produces an internet newsletter distributed in three languages, French, English, and Spanish. Michel Colon organized a network of civil observers in Yugoslavia and Iraq. Books he has authored include Liar's Poker, The Great Powers, Yugoslavia, and The Wars of the Future. Bush the Cyclone, and The Seven Sins of Hugo Chavez. Michel Colon, welcome. Welcome. Thank you. A new front in the U.S.-NATO war on the Islamic world has opened up in Libya in recent weeks. On the pretext of a humanitarian intervention, the usual allies, or should I say suspects, are bombing yet another country with major oil reserves. What do you think of the stated reasons for this latest bombing campaign? Well, I think it's a war for oil, again, but not only for oil. I think, in reality, when the USA wage a war, there are always several objectives and not one, because you take a risk, it costs a lot of money. If you don't win the war, then there's a big problem for the image. So taking that risk and engaging so much money means you are trying to achieve several objectives. It was the case about Iraq. It was the case about Yugoslavia. And if you consider this war against Libya, I think you have five goals. The question of oil, the question of Israel, the question of the Arabic world, the African world, and the question of NATO in Africa. Indeed, it's a war for oil because it's true that Libya is only 1-2% of the world oil production, but it's an oil of very good quality, very near France, Italy and Germany. So for these countries, it is very important. And there is really a battle also between these countries to get the contracts. And actually, the war for uh, oil is something organized at world level. I mean, the United States wants to lead the world to, uh, yes, to be the leader of the world. And for that, you need to have the control 
of the essential raw materials and, of course, oil as first. So the USA do not use the oil of Libya or Middle East for their own economy, but they want to control the access to oil of, of Europe, Japan, India, China, and so on. And if you have this, you can have a big uh, tool for blackmail uh, to hold the grip on the so-called allies, which are in reality rivals. So this is the first reason for war. The second is the question of the security of Israel. As you know, and as it was explained by Chomsky, Samir Amin, and others in my book, Israel Parlons-en, uh, let's talk about Israel last year. Actually, Israel is the cop of the world. I mean, the USA want to control the oil of the Middle East. Therefore, they need a cop, and that cop is Israel. But the problem is, Israel was in charge of attacking any, uh, of dividing the Arabic uh, countries and of attacking any countries that would, a country that would resist. But now the COP is fragile. And the problem is uh, the USA need Arabic dictatorships to protect the COP. So they need Egypt, they need uh, Jordania, Tunisia, and of course, most of all, Saudi Arabia to protect the Israeli COP. So what they, they want to prevent is an alliance of um, a Tunisia that would become anti-imperialist, Egypt the same, and Libya that was not a docile regime. And if these three countries are building an axe of resistance against USA and Israel, then Israel is in danger. That is the second objective. The third one is the question of prevent that the Arabic people get uh, liberated and emancipated. Because what you see now is that in the Arabic world, that is to say 300 millions of people in 20 countries, you have a few people very rich, those who work for the multinationals, those who give the oil to Exxon, Chevron and such companies. And the rest of the people is very poor, uh, sometimes desperately, like in Egypt. And the problem is they cannot build an economy because all the money of oil and of uh, natural resources and of the work of the people is going to the multinationals. So what the USA want to prevent is that there is a liberation of the Arabic world, that they, the people take the control of their resources and decide what they want to do with their economy. The fourth main objective is to prevent the alliance of uh, the unity of Africa and the emancipation of Africa. You know that the situation there is desperate. Africa is the most rich continent for raw materials, but is the poorest continent for the level of poverty of the population. And the reason is the multinationals take everything. They don't pay for the, the resources. They don't pay for the work of the people. They privatize everything. And what they want is that Africa is weak, without states, without public enterprises, without own markets, that uh, Africa is only a provider of uh, cheap raw material and cheap labor force. So the idea is to prevent Africa to, to become independent. And the problem is Gaddafi played a bad role in this sense because Gaddafi, for example, 
was one of the the people organizing the uh, African the monetary fund, excuse me, the African monetary fund, the opponent of the IMF. You know, the IMF is really blackmailing the African countries when they need money. Then they have to accept a lot of uh, things like dismantle education, dismantle healthcare, dismantle their own enterprises, and accept everything in reality in the benefit of the multinationals. So the IMF is not a bankster, it's a gangster. And the problem is Gaddafi financed some African projects of development, for example, the satellite for telecommunications before it was very expensive and in the hands of Europe. Gaddafi financed for that and other things. Like in Latin America, they have organized against the IMF, Banco Sur. And then uh, that's um, a fourth objective. Also because some countries of uh, Africa, including Libya, have the temptation to collaborate more with China and more with South Africa, South countries and against this monopoly of uh, the West. And then the fifth and final objective is in relation with that. It's uh, the question of the military occupation of Africa. As you know, the United States have organized AFRICOM, African Command, uh, since two or three years. And this is a military organization to control the continent and its resources. And what is strange is that uh, every African country, even those dominated by dictatorships, refuse to be the, the base of Africa Command. The base of Africa Command is still in Stuttgart, Germany, which is ridiculous, of course. So there is a resistance, and I think the war against Gaddafi is to give a, a message to the African state leaders, you are in danger if you don't obey. And you can notice that this, of course, Africa is related with all NATO because they are collaborating, and it's very important for progressive in the world to study the expansion of NATO, they are becoming the cup of the world. And this is something we announced 10 years ago uh, after the war against Yugoslavia. We said the war against Yugoslavia was a laboratory, was a repetition of next wars and world expansion for NATO. Well, it happens. The first war, war of NATO was in Europe against Yugoslavia. The second war of NATO was in Asia against Afghanistan. And this is now the third world on a third continent, Africa, the war against Libya. And oh, oh, by the way, they tried to do the same against Latin America with maneuvers against Venezuela, but that would be more difficult, so they didn't go so far up to now. So you see, NATO is becoming the, the World Cup for the multinationals. And if I can summarize, I think these goals achieves, tries to achieve, but I don't know if they will succeed. I hope not. These goals is achieving, of course, the question of oil, monopoly of oil, securizing Israel, preventing the liberation of African Arabic world, preventing the liberation of African world, and installing NATO as the cup of the world. These are the objectives of Obama and allies. Michelle, I'd like to talk to you in more depth about all five of your goals. But I first wanted to ask you about the media. Have we been told the truth by the major media about the situation in Libya? 
Or has the media again misrepresented the actual situation in order to advance the war effort as it has done in the past? Are the reasons for war on Libya more convincing than the cases made by the press for the wars on Afghanistan and Iraq? No, when you analyze and when you uh, try to hear the other side, then you see that the pretexts are just as ridiculous as they were before, and they use the same repetition of the same uh, tactics. I summarized the experience of the previous war in what I'm calling the five, uh, sorry, five again, uh, the five principles for war propaganda. And these, you can observe them in every war. I mean, first uh, principle, I mean, if you want to convince uh, the public that this war is just, first, uh, silence about the economic goals. You, of course, you are waging a humanitarian, democratic, peaceful war. It's not about economy. It's not about money. Second, you have to demonize the, uh, the, uh, the enemy. You have to present a monster, very cruel, very dangerous. Third, you have to hide the history. Hide, for example, what the colonialism has done against Libya and how it was against Libya, Iraq or Yugoslavia when the colonial powers were ruling these countries. The fifth is, the fourth uh, principle, sorry, is that you have to say uh, we are not aggressing, we are not attacking, we are the victims or we are protecting the victims. So you have to change the, the rules. And the, five, uh, the fifth uh, principle is you have to monopolize the information to impede the debate. You have to prevent access for the other side to the information. Well, those five principles, you find them again against Libya. All what I have explained about the goals is, of course, hidden in the big media. You've got a big demonization. For example, I don't know in the USA, but in Europe, the war started with this great uh, theme. Gaddafi bombarded uh, peaceful demonstrators. You have 6,000 uh, victims. This was really day and night in all media. And actually, if you go and check a little bit, what you find is who was speaking about 6,000 victims. First of all, it's very difficult to give a number in a situation of war. Every war correspondent will tell you that. How do you make to count the bodies? It's, uh, I mean, counting 6,000 bodies exactly, that's very difficult. But that guy who sent the information, Mr. Ali Zaidan, was very precise, wonderfully. 3,000 in Benghazi, 2,000 there, 1,000 there, and so on. And then the, the numbers are changed, but... Nevertheless, the message has been passed and people get under impression. But what you have to do if you are a fair journalist is to check who's that guy. And if you go just on internet, you see he's presenting himself as some uh, f speaker for the Libyan Human Rights Association. Actually, he's not. He's just presenting myself. The association has another responsible but then if you go and check a little bit more, you see that this man is also the spokesman for the opposition, for the rebels, for the so-called National Council of Trans Transition, the alternative government recognized by Sarkozy. 
So he's not only a human rights observer, he's actually the other side. And by the way, he made a very interesting declaration. He said, uh, we will respect the oil contrast with several countries, but of course, we will give advantage to the countries that helped us. He was talking about France. So can you explain to me how somebody who is only concerned with human rights observation can uh, also just change his hat and say, and we will give the contracts to France and no more to Italy or Germany, which was the case. So this is just one example. You have others. I really think the population has been manipulated in the Europe and as far as I know in the USA too. And could you repeat his name again? What was his name? Ali Zaidan. You can find this in an article I have sent on my webpage, michelcolon.info. His name is there and all the details I have explained. This article was translated into English and Spanish. You can find it. And the name is Ali Zaidan and you can check it on Google directly also. Oh, good. Thank you. I'm speaking with journalist and filmmaker Michel Collan. Today's show, Five Objectives of the United States in Africa. I'm Bonnie Faulkner. This is Guns and Butter. Why has the response of the imperialist powers in the United States and Europe been so different in Libya compared to how they reacted to the uprisings and topplings of dictators in Tunisia and Egypt? In neither of these two countries did Western forces attack, and in both cases dictators were forced out. Couldn't the Libyan people bring about regime change on their own, or is the U.S. attempting precisely to stop the flow of regime change in the broader region by this new invasion? Mm -hmm. Sorry, but I don't agree when you say they attacked the dictators. Um, I think uh, when Mrs. Hillary Clinton say says uh, we are supporting the will of Arabic people for democracy. Well, she's lying. Actually, the USA and allies have protected Ben Ali and Mubarak and others all the way long, until uh, just when Ben Ali was in the plane. Until then, they protected him. They tried to keep him in charge. You cannot forget that the United States have provided the weapons, the informations, the uh, teaching of uh, torture techniques to all the Egyptian uh, torturers. You cannot forget that the United States gave up to $1.2 uh, uh, billion of, dollars of weapons and so on to the Egyptian army. So it's not true that they are supporting democracy. It's a comedy. They are really helping the dictators in place. By the way, when you have an uprising, a popular uprising in Bahrain, what are the United States doing? They send 2,000 uh, Saudi troops to shoot at the demonstrators. And what are they doing when in Yemen, in one day, the official police is shooting on demonstrations, peaceful demonstrations, not people with weapons like in Libya, but peaceful demonstrators. It was proven that 52 persons were shot in one day. And what did say your Minister of War, Mr. Gates? He said, well, I don't think it's my job to uh, interfere in the internal uh, affairs of Yemen. So actually, you, it's wrong to say 
that they are doing good things in Tunisia and Egypt and bad things in Libya. They are doing the same thing. As I said, they want to keep the control of the Arabic world. And the control is using three methods for the same goal. First, they protect the dictators and they try to keep the dictators as long as possible. Second, when they have to remove a dictator, like Ben Ali of Mubarak, they just try to put his number two instead of him. What a change. What a call for democracy. And they try to keep the system without the, the symbol. That that's not a change. And the third uh, method they use is that they're trying to overrule the government of Libya, the government of Syria, that one of Iran. They will try to keep, again, the control of Lebanon against Hezbollah. And, of course, you can say a lot of things about these governments, and I'm not a fan of every of them. But the question is, uh, the USA and allies are completely hypocritical. They like dictators when those dictators obey to them, and they hate dictators when those dictators want to be independent. So I think that is the, the real answer to the lies of uh, Mrs. Clinton and Mr. Gates. We have heard suggestions that the uprisings are not genuine or are substantially manipulated. What do you think is the level of clandestine control by U.S. and European governments of the popular movements in North Africa? What do you think of the idea of controlled regime change as a way to maintain secret control of new but still puppet governments? Are you speaking more about Libya or more about Egypt, for example? Well, I'm thinking about uh, more about Egypt and Tunisia. Um, well, I'm, I'm speaking about all three, although the instances are different. That's true. Well, actually, as I said, they want to change a little bit in Tunisia and Egypt so that nothing really changes. They want to change the symbols. They are going to make a few concessions but to keep the essential, I mean the exploitation of the people and the fact that the multinationals are dictating everything about the economy, about social issues, and, and so on. Uh, you know, in Egypt, nobody talks about this, but recently the, the so-called new power took se uh, very severe measures against uh, the, the right of uh, making a strike and also against uh, progressive uh, organizations. So nothing has really changed in, uh, in Egypt. They are trying to make very few concessions to, to keep the control. With the new alliance, uh, the army, which was still already in power, and co-opting uh, the Muslim brothers, I mean, more the leaders of the Muslim brothers, because it's a popular movement, so you have several currents. So they try to, to make a new alliance to keep the control on Egypt. In uh, Libya, they are trying to control this movement. They provoked a war because they want to change the regime and to install their, their puppets. I really consider that you have in, uh, in Libya four components of the opposition. Some spontaneous demonstrations, of course, you have people... Uh, asking good things for democracy against Gaddafi, and I can support that. A second element of this opposition is uh, people who have, uh, were ministers 
of Gaddafi. They deserted. I think they were just bought by the USA or France. And now they are presenting themselves as an alternative. For example, the ex-minister of justice, which was the man torturing the Bulgarian nurses and called by Amnesty one of the 10th uh, worst uh, criminals in uh, North Africa. Well, he's now one of the leaders of the opposition. That's the second component. A third one is uh, that Libya still is a very tribal and feudal country with clans. With, yes, and it's, it's tribal. So it's a tra uh, traditional opposition. In the past, the colonizers, Italy and Great Britain, they... They tried to, well, they, they manipulated the, the, the clans from the east. And when Gaddafi made the revolution in 69, overruling the king and this colonial system, uh, his support was more in the west, in the, with the clans of the west. And of course, it's a division of the country, and it's a pity. But uh, now you have manipulated clans of the east who tried to use uh, the discontent to uh, install a regime who will just be a puppet of the, the, the USA, France, Italy, and so on. And the fourth component is the presence, certified also by the CIA, of uh, some Al-Qaeda-style uh, fighters in the east of Libya. Well, a good pleasure to handle with that in the future. USA are preparing themselves to their next Iraq, so... Uh, with pleasure with that. So I think you have to consider many revelations proving that the French secret services were very active long before the UN resolution on the ground in Libya to help the uh, rebellion to prepare themselves. They armed this rebellion and they were trapped also. A few uh, SAS uh, British fighters were trapped in eastern Libya. You had also 10 uh, Dutch Marines. They had to rescue them uh, with an helicopter in the last moment and so on. So they were on the ground weeks before the revolution. Same for the CIA, who was also present there. So it's uh, planned, a very well planned and programmed uh, so-called spontaneous rebellion. Well, very quickly, uh, what is your overall assessment of uh, General Gaddafi and his leadership of Libya, both the positive and the negative? You have a very good article published on our webpage about this, an interview we made with our expert of the Muslim world, Mohammed Hassan. He explained the good and the bad aspects. And uh, he's also living in Belgium. Could be interesting for you to contact him. He knows even more than I, I do about this. Uh, to summarize, I would say that Gaddafi started as something like Nasser in Egypt. I mean, a progressive and anti-colonial regime trying to get a real independence for Libya. And he achieved success. He nationalized the oil. That was his first sin. He brought support to the Palestinians, second sin. Second scene, and uh, he tried to get a union uh, of the Arabic countries. There he failed. He was also trying to help African unity. Many sins for the empire. 
So I think those are the good aspects. And also, he used the money of oil to give some social benefits, high level of education, high level of healthcare. And if you compare the situation of Libya with Egypt or Tunisia or other African countries, it's much better. That is for the first part. The second part is that it is a regime not at all democratic like Chavez or Evo Morales, as far as I know. And I think it's not, uh, well, it's very authoritarian, very repressive. Also, there was uh, discrimination towards the east part of the country, where the poverty was higher and where the advantages of the situation were, were lower than, than in the west. So that's not a good point. And in the last years, also, he made a lot of concessions to the IMF and the neoliberalism in general. You can say that he made these concessions because he saw what happened to Iraq and Saddam Hussein in 2003. And so he say, maybe he thought, I'm going to be isolated, I'm in danger, I have to make concessions. can think about that. I don't know. But um, I think anyway, uh, Gaddafi is not the sort of leader I would like for any country. Uh, I think Libyans have the right to desire a better leader or to desire to make reforms. But I think this possibility is a possibility for the Libyans, not for Obama or Cameron or Sarkozy. They have no right to say who is going to rule in Libya or in Iraq or in Yugoslavia or in Venezuela or in Cuba. Mr. Obama, he just has the right to try to do something for those 45 millions of citizens in the USA who are living under the level of poverty. And for that, he should spend not one billion, uh, well, I cannot, uh, I'm not sure how much, he shouldn't spend hundreds of billions of dollars to make war. He should just use that money against poverty in the USA. And then he, when he will have done that, Let's uh, see what he can do to help the world, but uh, first in your home, Mr. Obama. I'm speaking with journalist and filmmaker Michel Kalan. Today's show, Five Objectives of the United States in Africa. I'm Bonnie Faulkner. This is Guns and Butter. Well, what about the Libyan people themselves? Are they caught between General Gaddafi on the one hand and the rebels on the other? What do the Libyan people want? Actually, what the people who were on the ground, like the um, uh, Telesu crew or others, they say that the country is divided. It's really divided between several parts and we, between partisans of Gaddafi and uh, his opponents. So it's very regrettable. It's a situation you can see several countries. I think it's also a situation who was provoked by the USA, France and company because they made a lot of promises. They bought some leader as the so-called CNT and so on, National Council of Transition. And um, actually they, they provoked this because the problems in Libya, it's true that you should try to find good solutions, but 
I'm convinced that the USA, France and company, they don't want a solution. They just want to have their puppet in Tripoli to rule over the oil, to rule over all the money of Libya, and to have also a military basis that could uh, attack Egypt, for example. The area of extreme instability and violent repression is, of course, much larger than these three North African countries. Conditions in Yemen and Bahrain are similar, but there the governments with U.S. assistance have attacked resistance movements and demonstrators mercilessly. Could you describe the situations in Yemen and Bahrain and explain the role played there by the U.S. and other NATO countries? Well, I mentioned already before the fact that the USA not only do nothing but actually help the regimes in Bahrain and Yemen to kill demonstrators and to destroy the uh, democratic movement. The reason why they do that is very obvious. When you look at a map, you see the strategic importance of Yemen. It's a very important uh, military base. It's a very strategic uh, point to control the connection of the Arabic world to the Indian Ocean, which is the gate to go to Asia and to China. And I think the wars of the Uh, this new century are also uh, going to be wars for the control of the oceans. And uh, Yemen is really a key point for for that. So keeping the dictator of Yemen uh, protected against uh, all the popular movements is very important. And then If you are Washington, you have to protect uh, Bahrain because you have to protect Saudi Arabia and you have to protect all these Emirate uh, dictatorships who use the money of oil to please the U.S. multinationals, to build towers and castles and uh, every sort of stupidities why the Arabic people, workers, peasants and so on are starving to death. And that is the reason. They don't want to lose uh, good friends who are giving the money for oil and who are giving the benefits and who are keeping the Arabic masses under, under a dictatorship, actually. Viewed from the standpoint of rivalry between competing capitalist powers, it seems odd that the French government cooperates with the U.S. in Africa to the degree that it does. We're used to seeing the U.S. and the U.K. working in tandem, but it is less obvious why France and Germany are so obliging within the NATO framework. Could you explain the division of labor between the U.S. and subsidiary empires, such as the French imperialist operations in Africa? Well, I think the situation is uh, complex and uh, sometimes changing very fast and even contradictory. I think first the Basic principle is this. Between what I'm calling the, uh, the imperialist uh, powers, USA, France, Germany, uh, Great Britain, and so on, you have end unity and rivalry. Unity because they agree on one goal, to dominate the South, to dominate the third world countries, and to maintain unfair economic rules to the benefit of the multinationals. For that, they are united. But then they are rivals because this makes possible 
to get the kick. And when it starts about sharing the kick, of course, every of the big powers want the big part of the kick. And the USA has done this in the previous war. And now you have the question, who is going to take the big part of the kick? If you consider Germany, for example, it was very obvious that in this war, they were, in this question, they were against the bombings and they refused to take part. The question is why? And Italy also was very reluctant. Uh, in the first days, uh, Italy said that this will not help to solve the problems, but will increase the problems. The question is, if you want to understand that, you have to look at the contracts. You have to look at who was doing business with uh, Libya. And you have to state that uh, those who took the good part of the cake were Italy and Germany and the oil contracts, and the building contracts, and every big contract. You know, Libya is a rather rich country, so you have very interesting contracts there for the capitalists. And the big part of the cake was for Germany and Italy, and they refused to take part in the war. The very short part of the cake was for Britain and France. Well, they tried to change the rules of dividing the cake. That's it. And there is a rivalry. And by the way, you have another dimension. In Europe, which is really in an economic and social crisis, you've got a growing rivalry between Germany and France. They were allied before against Great Britain, who was close to uh, the USA. And now there is more rivalry. It's not a question between Merkel and Sarkozy. It's a rivalry between the multinationals. And again, who is going to take the big uh, part of the cake in Europe? And so now France uh, has a temptation to uh, make an alliance with London against Germany to be stronger in Europe. And so this is why they made the war. Now, you are certainly going to ask, yes, but why did Obama rely himself on uh, Sarkozy and so on? Well, I think the USA is also going weaker. When you consider the USA, it's a declining power at economic level. Actually, you could say it's a bankrupt uh, economy and state. It's also a declining power at military level, which war the USA could win in the last 20 years. They lost everywhere. After Granada in 83, they lost every war in the USA, except Yugoslavia, but uh, they could not win on the ground. So uh, the USA is declining. They are afraid that in this world they are going to have to share and uh, they cannot dominate as before in front of Russia, more in front of China. And even many South countries are trying to organize South relations to try to escape to this uh, domination of the USA. So they have a big problem. By the way, they could not win the war in Iraq. They could not win the war in Afghanistan. It's a mess and it costs a lot. So Obama was very clever to send Sarkozy first, and that's Cocorico for France. And uh, Sarkozy uh, was very proud to say, I am waging my war like uh, the big people. But actually, uh, uh, the USA were manipulating him also. So I think between these powers, you have unity and rivalry. And it will continue, and the alliances will change and change in uh, the next years. 
What is your explanation for Israel's own imperial operations in the Middle East, i.e., its occupation of Palestine and brutal repression of the Palestinians, and its recurrent invasions of Lebanon and threats against Iran? Is it subservient to the much broader U.S. imperial objectives as a cop on the beat for the U.S., or is it a rogue elephant whose violence is destabilizing to U.S. NATO interests? I know that some people are speaking about this second uh, possibility, but I absolutely don't believe in that. I really think Israel is the duck of the USA. And, of course, they, you can have some minor contradictions from time to time. You have that. But uh, Israel is the cop of the Middle East, the cop of the oil, and they wage the war. The USA uh, let them uh, wage uh, I really think um, Israel, well, they oppress uh, Palestine because they could colonize only by chasing the people. It's Israel that's ethnic cleansing of the Palestinian people, so they, they have to do it. And if you look at the flag of the USA, you've got two white, uh, blue sorry, stripes there, and the symbol is the two big rivers in Iraq, and if you consider that Israel has no constitution, it's the only country in the world who has no constitution, a constitution says, well, this state is going from there to there, and then you have the limits of that state. Well, Israel has no limits, because Israel is a colonial project, and it will expand as, as much as possible. So uh, that's normal that they oppress uh, uh, Palestinian. Well, it's normal in their logic. It's normal that they attack Lebanon, Syria, and any other countries to try to increase their territory. It's a colonial project. I'm speaking with journalist and filmmaker Michel Kalan. Today's show, Five Objectives of the United States in Africa. I'm Bonnie Faulkner. This is Guns and Butter. The U.S. imperial machine does not control the Indian Ocean nearly to the extent that it controls the Atlantic and Pacific Oceans. Africa, the Middle East, and Asia are linked together by the Indian Ocean, and most of the world's oil flows take place across its surface. What is the importance of the Indian Ocean geostrategically? Well, that is probably the most important question indeed, because... Uh we all know that Asia, there will be a decision who's going to lead the world. And uh, we know that uh, the Indian Ocean is the key to China. So that is why the USA want to control that. And uh, if you look at the map again, you see that all oil and materials all the trade actually to Asia and China has to pass in this Indian Ocean. And then you understand why the USA are so concerned to keep the control of some strategic areas, the Horn of Africa, for example, Somalia, Sudan, Ethiopia, Eritrea, they want to control that. Yemen, Oman, we talked about this. And then also Pakistan is a key country to, to control this. Actually, all points of this uh, strategic war in the Indian Ocean, the USA want to control them. But China knows that it's against uh, 
themselves. It's again China. And China now is trying to get allies in the region and to get a basis for his own trade and to get access for raw materials. So, uh, yes, this will be the decisive part for the, the great battle of the 21st century. Do you agree that the United States is uh, purposefully destabilizing Pakistan? And if so, why? Well, it's a key country. They had the control of this country for decades. They fear that it's going, they can lose it. Actually, the war in Afghanistan has extended already to Pakistan and the war in Afghanistan was also to have the control of Pakistan. So the USA, yes, really, they they fear to to lose this control. And if they lose the control of Pakistan, then uh, the situation in Asia will be very, very difficult. Well, yes, but what do you think about the strategy of destabilizing Pakistan? I mean, Pakistan was a, a big ally of the United States. Why are they trying to destabilize it? Are they trying to take it down as a, as a country? Yes, this happens in several countries, and you have to know that even if they have allies, even if they have puppets, they want to blackmail these states, they want to control them, and they don't hesitate to weaken them. For example, Israel has uh, Egypt as a good ally since uh, Sadat, since many years. Nevertheless, Israel is trying to weaken the position of Egypt in Sudan and in other countries, because they prepare the future. They don't want to have a strong Pakistan or a strong Egypt or a strong Sudan. They are trying to weaken these countries, but because they are afraid, they are afraid that they cannot control them indefinitely. In your writings, you have said the United States empire is on the decline and that China and India are rising powers. Could you give some specific indicators of U.S. decline and describe the trends that you see toward a world without a superpower? Well, if you consider the part of the uh, United States in the, uh, I don't know how you call that in English, the gross industrial product or something like that, well, in their share in the world economy, it was about 50%. Uh, after the Second World War. Of course, this was the top and the special circumstances. But it was for a long time some 30% of the world production. Now it's about 20%. And according to the forecast of the uh, CIA, in, let's say, 20 years, it will be 10 or 11%, not more than China, not more than Europe, not more than some powers which means that the United States, as was predicted by Zbigniew Brzezinski in his book, The Grand Chessboard, the United States will most probably be the last superpower. And Brzezinski, in his book, explains that there is no way you can prevent that. You can only make it slower. You can try to keep the dominancy of the USA, but you cannot change the fact that they are the last superpower. So, actually, I think we have now a possibility to stop with colonialism because colonialism actually didn't stop. It's neocolonialism, it's uh, through proxies, it's not so obvious because you think you have independent states, uh, 
But actually, many countries of Africa, some countries of Latin America and Asia, are living under colonialism. And of course, Israel is a very important colony in the Middle East. The question is, will this continue or will this stop? And since we have now a multipolar world with another balance of forces between USA, Europe, but mainly Russia, China, and Brazil and South emerging country, with this new relation of forces, well, the, all the battles of now are about those questions. Will the USA remain very long the superpower? It's about that. The arc of instability, even chaos, extends much more widely to include Somalia, uh, Eritrea, Iraq, uh, Afghanistan, and Pakistan. Plans are always afoot to attack Iran. Is there some overarching geopolitical cause for all this instability, repression, and war? Could the, quote, global war on terrorism be interpreted, for example, as an attempt to deny China, India, or other rising nations of the energy resources they need for rapid development? Well, the label uh, war on terrorism is just a Hollywood-made uh, marketing uh, product. doesn't mean anything. You do not combat terrorism by making war against countries. So it's just a pretext. What is real is that there is a war to control the world, a war non-declared against China, and a war, declared or not, against many countries who try to become independent. And it's very interesting to consider the list of the, the countries you mentioned. Because actually, for the USA, the choice is simple. They try to control the strategic states. Every state, actually, but those countries who are strategic more. Then they have several methods. One method is corruption. You just buy a president. That is, most of the time, very cheap. If you cannot corrupt, if you cannot buy him, then you blackmail him. There are many possibilities, or you make pressures. And if this is not enough, you make sanctions, you make embargo, you make a mediatic war. Uh, if this is not enough, you provoke a civil war. You arm the other part, you arm rebels, and you try to provoke a civil war. And if you don't win, anyway, you will uh, make the, the government weaker. And if all this does not succeed, then uh, you make a war. And if you cannot control a country, you plunge them in the chaos. This is why Somalia, uh, that what was made against Somalia by the U.S., all their policy was to make Somalia weaker. This was made against Sudan, divide him, and against Eritrea, which is a very small country, threatening nobody. And uh, most of the people couldn't even say where in the world is Eritrea. Well, it's a very interesting experience because Eritrea was a colony of Italy, of Great Britain, and then of Ethiopia, which is uh, the puppet of the USA in the region. It was a brutal war with a lot of victims. And uh, finally, 20 years ago, Eritrea got its, its independence and they tried to, um, to make an economic and social development. I, I'm talking about this passionately because I went there a few months ago, and we are making a documentary film about this, 
And it's a very interesting experience, a little bit like Cuba, you could say, well, in other circumstances. Well, what are the USA doing against Eritrea? They are uh, demonizing, they are imposing sanctions, and they, they are preparing an attack. And also they are trying to make blackmail with the IMF and so on. And so you will get in the next months and years bad news about Eritrea, that it's a big danger. I don't know that they have terrorism or that they support this and that. So actually, the so-called war on terrorism is just a global war of the USA to try to dictate their will all over the world. What is your understanding of what is referred to as Al-Qaeda? Is Al-Qaeda a real entity or movement or simply a fabricated enemy? I think um, it's the kind of uh, enemy very useful for the USA. They have a pretext. The problem is not what Al-Qaeda does or does not do, is it connected or not, and so on. The problem is the cause of all these problems, including terrorism, the cause is the United States themselves. They are imposing poverty, they are imposing discrimination, they organize to divide the people according to religion, nationalities, color of the skin, or I don't know what. And actually, they, they need a situation like this. Uh, for example, about Afghanistan, Al-Qaeda was a very useful myth because the situation in Afghanistan, this was the product of Washington action. Everybody knows now that who financed and armed and organized the, uh, the Taliban's, well, those who came just before the Taliban's, well, with bin Laden. It was the USA. It was under the presidency of Carter, Mr. Zbigniew Brzezinski. He paid and financed those terrorists to attack a progressive regime in Afghanistan in the 70s and the 80s. That's it. So the USA provoked the problem. And now that they wanted to control the center of Asia, to have military bases there, to have a pretext to be in the center of Asia, of course, they need an enemy, and they need to tell to the people that this enemy is dangerous. What U.S.-NATO geopolitical moves do you anticipate in the next few years? Well, as I said, the, uh, NATO is installing himself as a tool of the U.S. to make war the global uh, cop of the, uh, of the world. They had a war in Europe, one in Afghanistan, one in Africa, and... In Africa, you have five targets. You had five targets. You just have to see the list of the countries who refused to uh, be part of Africa or the NATO. And who are those five countries? First, you have uh, Zimbabwe under sanctions with a war non-declared by the U.S. Second, you have the, you have the Ivory Coast. Uh, provoked civil war, provoked by the U.S., Gbagbo uh, today uh, of ruled. Third country who did not accept Sudan, split in two, under pressure, under sanctions. Fourth country is Libya, under bombings. And fifth country is Eritrea, I just mentioned, also under sanctions and under threat. So actually, you've got the list. Every country who wants to be independent in Africa and elsewhere 
will be in danger. So then what you have just, just described, would you, would you call that the African strategy? Yes, that's the U.S. African strategy, absolutely. Michel Colon, thank you very much. Well, it was a pleasure to be with you. I've been speaking with Michel Colon. Today's show has been Five Objectives of the United States in Africa. Michel Colon is a Belgian writer, journalist, and historian. He is an activist and also a filmmaker. He is dedicated to uncovering the propaganda ensconced in the mass media. He directs Investig Action, a team of investigative journalists. Investig Action is a collective founded in 2004 as a platform for those who have no voice in traditional media. Investig Action produces an internet newsletter distributed in three languages, French, English, and Spanish. Michel Kalan organized a network of civil observers in Yugoslavia and Iraq. Books he has authored include Liar's Poker, The Great Powers, Yugoslavia and the Wars of the Future, Bush the Cyclone, and The Seven Sins of Hugo Chavez. Visit Michel Kalan's website at www.michelcalan.info. That's M I C H E L. C-O-L-L-O-N dot I-N-F-O info. Today's show was co-produced by Todd Fletcher. Guns and Butter is produced by Bonnie Faulkner and Yara Mako. To leave comments or order copies of shows, email us at blfaulkner at yahoo.com That's B-L-F-A-U-L-K-N-E-R at yahoo.com Visit our website at www.gunsandbutter.org. That's G-U-N-S-A-N-D-B-U-T-T-E-R dot O-R-G. Hey, yo, these are some serious times that we live in, G. And our new world order is about to begin. You know what I'm saying? Now the question is, are you ready for the real revolution? Which is the evolution of the mind If you seek, then you shall find That we all come from the divine You dig what I'm saying? Now if you take heed to the words of wisdom That are written on the walls of life Then universally we will stand And divided we will fall Because love conquers all You understand what I'm saying? This is a call for all you sleeping souls Wake up and take control of your own cipher And be on the lookout for the spirit sniper trying to steal your life. You know what I'm saying? Look with inside yourself for peace.